Father, right now, I just want to take the time to go before you. And God, I want to believe right now that you are more than able to do amazing things in these next 30 minutes. Um, that there are people here today who are here carrying heavy burdens in their lives, whether personal burdens or maybe burdens in their family, in their marriage, with their kids. And they're feeling like they've tried and there's no answer. God, I pray today we would see that you are more than able. And so, Lord, right now, as we rest under your word, Lord, I want to believe that you are more than able to use this broken vessel to speak your truth. And I want to rely on your spirit and your spirit alone because my words doesn't have life. It's your words only that have life. And your word is the only power that can bring dead hearts to life and that could open our eyes to see the beauty of your gospel. And so I want your words through your Holy Spirit alone to be what's spoken through. So Father, open our hearts so that we can hear and see the beauty that's found in your gospel. And Lord, that we would receive that and believe that and see and, 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 and wait on you and to see the amazing transformation that you have in store for us. And so that is what I pray for us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Carly Lundy, and I serve as one of the pastors here um, at the church. And I just want to say uh, welcome for those of you who are visiting us for the first time. Um, last or two weeks ago, um, I preached on uh, Galatians chapter 3, and I think I preached for about an hour and a half, maybe, or I mean, they say it was about an hour and a half, but I think it was about 45 minutes. Um, I, but I, I promise you, it would not be that long this week. But I am really excited about this text. So if it does go along, it's because I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about. But I promise it probably won't be that long. Um, so we are in Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, verses one through seven. And for those of you, again, who are here for the first time, we have been walking through the book of Galatians now for several weeks. And again, every week, I want to encourage you, um, before you come on Sunday, if you have the chance, listen to the sermons before uh, the weeks uh, that you come, because it gives you context to where we are. And so to save time, I'm not going to go and give us a long recap, but I do want to kind of um, uh, share a couple of information so that we can be on the same page. So we've been walking through this book, and in this book, we've been seeing Paul, and Paul, who is the author of this book, he's been passionately arguing, pretty much he's been giving in apologetics for the gospel, arguing and confronting false teachers in their false teachings. And so throughout Galatia, 
Um, there are several churches that Paul was able to plant in his lifetime. And so throughout Galatia, these false teachers were coming in and they were preaching a different gospel. And so this different gospel that they were preaching was causing believers to uh, be led astray from this authentic message of grace to believing a message or a gospel called legalism, right? And so legalism is the argument or the, the, the gospel message that Paul is arguing against. And legalism teaches that in order for us to be right with God or to be accepted by God, we have to follow or live by strict religious rules, right? Follow these strict religious rules and sometimes without the understanding of the reasons why we are doing those rules, right? And so Paul is arguing against Legalism And legalism teaches that we are justified by our works. We are justified by our good deeds. So the more moral you are, the more good you are as a person, you do good things, eventually God will see you and weigh those good things and then determine the outcome based on the works. And so Paul hears that this was the gospel that was being circulated throughout the churches in Galatia, and so he wrote this book called Galatians to remind the believers that we are not justified by following rules. We are not justified by following these religious obligations, but we are justified by faith. We are made right with God. We are accepted by God based on what Christ has done and not in what we can do. And so on the cross, Jesus satisfied all of God's demands with his life. As a result, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And this was the gospel that Paul had preached to the Galatians. And so if you are here today, I want to remind you of that gospel. And so what I want to do, I want to actually review the gospel with us. And I want to use an acronym, and hopefully this acronym will help you remember what the gospel message is, so that if you ever have to share the gospel, hopefully you would, share the gospel with friends or family, you would know what the gospel message is. Or if you need to remind yourself of the gospel, you would know what the gospel message is. And so the gospel is the good news that we are deeply loved by God. You're deeply loved by God. And some of us need to hear that today. We are deeply loved by God. One, G, God deeply loves us. We are created by God, we are created for God, and we are created to experience God, right? But our sins have separated us from God. And this is why the gospel is such good news, because when we've sinned and we've broken God's command, God doesn't just leave us and abandon us and leave us to ourselves, going astray. But in fact, what we see in the gospel, God pursues us. We have broken God's commands. We have been separated from God. But the good news of the gospel, he is relentlessly pursuing you, right? God is coming after you and he wants you. However, as sin has to be dealt with. 
all the ways that we've turned from God, all the sins that we have broken, we have broken God's law, we are not living according to his standards, and because of that, God is holy, and he is a perfect judge, and as a perfect judge, he can't just sweep our sins under a rug. And so sin has to be dealt with. And the Bible says that Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. The consequences for all of our sins, which we all have broken God's command, is death. But the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so this is why Jesus came on this earth to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve so that we can have a life that we couldn't earn, and he made payment for our sins. And so P, payment for sin, was satisfied through Jesus. Jesus fully took on the consequences that we deserve, right? Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. That's why you trying to do anything to make up for the sins that you have done, those are not perfect sacrifices. And this is the reason why Jesus came to be that perfect sacrifice. He lived a sinless life to be a perfect sacrifice, to perfectly fulfill the demands of the law, which now makes salvation possible for E, everyone. Everyone now who trusts in Jesus alone can be saved. You're not too far from God's salvation. Or you haven't done too much to be disqualified. Everyone who trusts in Jesus can be saved. We don't have to try to fulfill the law now. We don't have to try to be perfect because Jesus took care of that for us, right? And when we believe in Christ and what Christ has done, listen, his status become ours. God credit his status to our account where Jesus is righteous. Now we become righteous in Christ. Now Jesus, who is in the position of the son, the beloved son, now we are in the same position in Christ to be a beloved son of God. And so all of who Jesus is, when we are in Christ, we are seen just as he is seen. God sees us through the lens of Christ. And from that point, L, life, life is offered to us. We have life. We are restored into fellowship with God. And we get to experience life with God. And we get to experience a life that starts now and it lasts forever. And this is the gospel. And this is the gospel that Paul has been preaching, that we are saved, that we are brought into a relationship with God, and we're not brought into a mindless religion. The reason why you are saved is not to bring you into religion. We are saved to be free to enjoy God. When God saves us, he doesn't save us to enslave us. That doesn't make sense. He doesn't save us to enslave us, but he saved us to free us. And we see this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when God delivered the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, right? 
this chain of slavery that they were in that they couldn't break free from, this bondage of, of a burden, this bondage under an oppressor that was seeking to destroy their life. When God delivered them from hopelessness and helplessness, God says in, in, in Exodus chapter 7, the Lord said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Why? To bring them into religion? No. So that my people would be free to worship me in the wilderness. So when God saves us, he delivers his people. He doesn't deliver his people to now enter into another form of religious slavery. But when God saves his people, he delivers them to be free to worship from the freedom of legalism of trying in ourselves to break free from the chains and the bondage that we're in. No, he he saves us not to be slaves, but he saves us to be sons, to experience a new life and privilege in Christ. And this is what Paul is going to help us understand, try to help us understand in chapter four, right? And I want to clarify something, right? When Paul says that we are now saved to be sons, Paul is not a male chauvinist, right? He's not trying to be a male chauvinist where he excludes women. Actually, the word that he is using that's connected to son is a word that has a feminine noun in it, which means that it's both representing men and women, right? And so this is a legal term that he is using in this cultural context that people would understand that when you are a son, you receive an inheritance from a father. And so what Paul is actually doing, he's not just saying you are a son to women, right, to not include women. In fact, he's elevating women. And he is saying that you get to experience the same inheritance as all sons, right? Because when you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, this is what he's trying to get at. When we are in Christ, he says, now, when you're baptized in Christ, Christ is, is you're clothed in Christ. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. There is no free. There's no slave. There's no male. There's no female. We are all one in Christ. That means every single one of us get to experience the same benefit in Christ. So he elevates us to this equal status. And so I want to make that clear so I don't get any emails. Like when I say you are a son, what Paul is saying is that we are all in the son. We are all in Christ to be able to experience all of the benefit that we have in Christ equally. And so Paul in verses 1 through 7 what he is about to do, he's about to touch on a biblical teaching called the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of adoption, right? The doctrine of adoption and like seminary term is considered to be the apex of the gospel, like the core of the gospel, like the true, the, where, where, the, where, where the gospel is trying to aim at, right? That we are adopted, The doctrine of adoption tells us that because of God's grace, believers are now part of God's family and all believers have all the special rights and benefits that comes with being in God's family. The doctrine of adoption really touches at the core of all hearts, at the core of all human beings. 
Because every single one of us have this deep-rooted sense that we don't belong in this world. Every single one of us have this innate sense that this world is not our own. It's not our home. Something about this world doesn't connect with us. And this disconnect that we have with this world fuels us to relentlessly pursue meaning and belonging. This sense that we don't belong fuels us, and we spend our whole lives trying to figure out who we are, and we try to anchor our identity on worldly achievements, or we try to anchor our identity on relationship or status to only find that it's unsatisfying. This deep sense of, like, who am I? And so we often see, even with relationship, we try to pursue relationship and then we never find, even the most healthiest of relationship and marriage and friendships and family, we still find that it's unsatisfying because we were made to be in relationship with a person that is beyond this natural world. We were made for God. C.S. Lewis says, if we find in ourselves desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. And Augustine says that our hearts are restless until it finds rest in him. Right? And this is at the core of every human being. And so the doctrine of adoption tells us that we were made for another world, that we have a home with God and we belong with him. And so when we are saved, we're not forgiven and reconciled to just uh, uh, with our sins, but we're reconciled to be a part of a family. We're reconciled to a relationship. And so the spiritual adoption reveals to us who we are, identity. And it promises, that, that, uh, promises us that we have a loving father, a loving father where he satisfies our deepest longing. And so when Paul talks about this doctrine in verses 1 and 7, it shows us the beauty that is found in the gospel that cannot be found in religion or the law, right? Because what the gospel does, it brings us into relationship with the loving father. And so throughout the Bible, we see this language of adoption used specifically to believers, specifically to believers, right? And we're going to go through a large uh, body of text, and so I want you to follow along with me. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 7, listen to what it says. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to go back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. And if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so here we see that those who are led by the Spirit 
are adopted into God's family. The Holy Spirit will give those who are led by the Spirit the spirit of adoption to call God Father. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 through 6, it says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Here we see that it says that those who are adopted into God's family are those who are predestined through Christ. God adopts you as a child because it is part of his plans, his redemptive plans. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, it says that, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. And to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. Again, those who are adopted into God's family are those who receive and believe in Jesus. Only by trusting in Jesus, we gain the right to be a part of his family, right? And then one last one in John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. And you see how we are made for another world here, right? Dear friends, he goes on and says, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that we, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, those who are adopted into God's family are those who look like Christ and who are purifying themselves, right? And so Paul gives these or verses, and we see these verses in the Bible, and then Paul addressed this in Galatians chapter 4, right, to show us that it's an exclusive right for those who are believers to be a part of God's family. And this is what makes Christianity a different belief system or different from all other religion because of this doctrine of adoption. Christianity is not like other religion. Christianity is the only belief that tells us explicitly that God, the creator, wants to be father to us. Christianity is the only belief that tells us that God, the creator, wants an intimate personal relationship with us. He wants to call us sons and he wants to call us daughters. He wants to share in his inheritance with us. All other belief systems essentially operates with what's called an orphan syndrome. All other religion operates with an orphan syndrome. And what that means is they all operate believing that God exists God is a transcendent being. He exists far and above us, but he is not intimate. He's not near. Or he creates, he gives birth to this world, to creation, but then he doesn't get involved. 
He creates and gives birth, but we have no clue of who he is. And he can't really be known. He lives somewhere far off, but he's emotionally detached. He doesn't care to be intimate. And so as a result, and this is why this doctrine connects with every single one of us, in some form, it exists in all religion, but personally, it connects with us. As a result, we feel, and this is the reason why we feel like we have to figure out life on our own. We have to figure out who we are. We have to figure out our identity. We have to figure out where we belong. We have to figure out our purpose. We have to figure out how to survive, to get by in life because of this orphan syndrome. That God exists, but he is far. That God exists, but he doesn't care to be intimate. That God exists, but he is detached. That God exists, but he has left me to figure out life on my own. And so this doctrine is deeply rooted inside of all of us because we don't know Father. And because we don't know Father, we're constantly pursuing and searching to know him, to affirm our identity and value. We're looking to all these things and we can never be satisfied because we are all pursuing and wanting to know the Father that is missing. And deep down inside, we all have this spiritual orphan syndrome. And so all religion operates in this orphan syndrome. And so Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, he tells us, you can know Father. And you can call him Abba. You can call him Abba. Do you know you can call God Abba? And so this word, it's an exclusive word that we only saw Jesus use once. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, the only time this word was ever used by Jesus, when Jesus was going to the cross, he cried out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, all things are possible, remove this cup from me, Yet, not my will, but yours be done. This is when Jesus used that word where he cried out to God. And in two other times we see this word referred to. But we see here in verse 6, Paul says that now we in Christ have the right to relate to God as daddy, as papa, as father, and not just this distant God. And then again, we see this word, Father, is so exclusive that even in the Old Testament, only 15 times in the Old Testament, God was referred to as Father. But then you get to the New Testament, over 175 times, Father was used to refer to God. And every single one of those 175 times was used by Jesus. And that was a radical shift that took place. And this is why when he was teaching the disciples how to pray, he says, hey, when you pray, call God Father. Call God Father. And this was so exclusive that even when Jesus used the term Father to refer to God, his enemies tried to kill him. Because they said, you are using God's name in a disrespectful way. 
right? In John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God, right? That word father communicates closeness, right? If you came to my house and you saw my kids running around and calling me father, right? You think these kids are weird. Like, why would, why would you call your, your dad father, right? I mean, yes, father is what I want to be called because it communicates respect and honor, but that's a formal relationship that my kids would have with me. And you would think that'd be weird, right? Because you would expect for my kids to be calling me dad, dad, daddy, daddy, right? Which is kind of annoying sometimes because all the time it's like daddy, 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 right? But I mean, like, man, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, when my daughter was born and that first word she said, I mean, I take credit for it. She called daddy first. <laughs> and it just melted my heart right? Just to hear her say, daddy. But can you imagine if when she was born, her first words were father, (laughs) right? Or mother, or better yet, Carly, right? I would think she needs an exorcism, right? Like, what's wrong with you, you know? But it means, and this is why it matters, it means so much to us. We want to record those moments when our kids use their first word, and their first word is mama, or daddy, because it communicates closeness, right? And this is what Paul is trying to get at in chapter four. It shows us that religion can never establish this closeness with God, right? And it's relationship with God that God wants from us, not religion, not for us to be slaves. And so in religion, We serve God, and this is what happens, and this is why Christianity is so different from other religion, because in religion, we serve God on the basis of him being master or creator, and we are slaves or we are servants. And so we do things for reward or we do things out of fear. And so we serve God because it's a transactional relationship, whereas when it's a relationship with father and son, we serve God out of love. We serve God out of honor and worship. We serve God out of intimacy, not out of fear. And this is why the verse says, he didn't save us to give us now a spirit of fear, of slavery, but he saved us to give us a spirit of adoption, of son, so that we may call him Abba, Father, right? And so this is what Paul is saying. Religion will never be able to get us there. That's the amazing privilege that we have and Father. And so ever since of the fall, because of sin, we've been separated from home. And when Adam and Eve was kicked out of the garden, ever since of that point, our hearts have been longing for home. Our hearts have been longing for Abba, Father. And so this is what Paul wants to emphasize here in Galatians chapter 4 to show us that we have this amazing relationship. So in Galatians 4, verse 4 through 6, Paul says, when the time came to adoption, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that they might have or receive the spirit of adoption. 
because you are sons. God sent the spirit of his son into your heart to cry, Abba. Abba, the special privilege that we get to call Abba. Our dad, God, daddy. This intimate name that is reserved only to his son. And not just the name is given to us as a benefit, an exclusive benefit. There are other exclusive benefits that we see in this doctrine of adoption, right? One, in this doctrine, we see how much God really wants us, right? How much God really wants us. He desires you. He wants you, right? He loves you, but he also wants you. Those are two different things, right? When you say, I love you, yes, I love you. But man, I want you. I desire you. This teaches us how much God desires us. He wants us. And so we are not an accident if you are a believer. If you are a believer, you're not an accident. You are actually God's plan. He pursued after you because that's how much he deeply wanted you. God's adoption is not a backup plan. In fact, God's adoption was his very plan from the very beginning, right? And what's beautiful about this is, for example, my wife had three kids, right? So notice I said I didn't, we didn't have three kids. My wife had him, right? And so my wife had three kids. And when our kids were born, we had no clue <laughs> what our kids would be. We had no clue about their personalities right now. Every year, they're just like, we're getting to know them. We're like, oh, okay. You know, like, I didn't know you liked these things, right? And then they're going to continue to grow, and we're going to continue to learn more and more about them. And then when they get to being an adult, I hope you know, they will be good adults, right? Uh, but we don't know because we don't know these kids. We're getting to know these kids. The beautiful thing about adoption is the actual opposite, where God knows everything about us. He knows all of our history, past, present, and future, right? And he still wants you. He still pursued you, right? Just like adoption, like when you adopt a kid, you know, some, sometimes you have a chance of knowing their whole history, history of their family, history of their kids. And especially if they're older kids, you know, history of their trauma. And what makes adoption so beautiful, you have a family that says, I still want them. I still want to bring them home to be family. And that is the beauty that we find in God's adoption that God wants us that bad. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. It says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Meaning that there's nothing that you did that God was surprised at or that could have changed his mind. Because before he even created the world, he had your name in mind. He had your adoption in mind. Before the foundation of the world, to be holy, he chose us. To be blameless before him. And he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus himself, for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Not according to what you have done. Not according to your status, not according to your history, but according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us. In the beloved, 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. It was according to his will. Because God wanted to, he adopted us, right? And then not just that, but also to lavish on us his grace, and not because we deserve it. And so, but look, look, at, look at this. Prior to our adoption, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, this is who we were. And God still said, I want you. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, and by grace we are saved and raised up. He raised us up to be seated with him in heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And for by grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been adopted through faith. And this is not because you did anything to earn it. It's the gift of God, not a result of our works. Isn't that beautiful? To know that at one point we are children of wrath, meaning children that deserve to be destroyed. But then God saw us. And he adopted us. That's how much he wanted us. He planned for us. He predestined us. And then it goes on to say that he raised us up to give us a dignity, to give us a new name, a different identity, to no longer be children called wrath or deserving wrath. But now we are children. We no longer identify with our past and our mistakes, but now we are made new. We are giving a new name, a new identity, right? And he seats us in heavenly places to be with him, right? And if you don't believe that you and I didn't deserve adoption or we did something to earn it, to deserve it, Ezekiel chapter 16 is a very convicting passage that describes like how we were so undeserving, but then it's because of his grace. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses four through six, it says, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloth. No one looked on you with pity and had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for On the day you were born, you were despised. And then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said, live. I said, live. That is the beauty that's found in adoption, that God wanted us that much, that bad, that he saw us in our sin and he said, 
I want you. I want you. Right? And so not only does adoption shows us how we are desperately or God wants us and he pursues us, relentlessly pursues us, right? But it also shows us how God paid a very expensive price to bring us home, right? And so just like any adoption, it could be very expensive, right? It could be very expensive. It could be very exhausting physically, emotionally, right? Draining, right? Even if you had biological kids, they're very expensive, and they could be very exhausting, right? You know, and they're expensive for like the next 18 years, right? Because when you think about it, like every time you have a child, you have to upgrade, right? You have to upgrade your car. You may have to upgrade your house and you may have to upgrade your job, right? And for the next 18 years, you're being exhausted by these kids. All right, true? I love them. Hey, listen, I'm just being real, all right? And I'll confess to them later. I said that. Um, but the reality is, I mean, having kids, especially adopting kids, it costs. It costs. Now, what's interesting with God is God wasn't upgrading to adopt us. In fact, God exhausted. He downgraded. He downgraded for us. And we see this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, that it says that Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, but didn't count equality with God a thing to hold on to, but instead what he did was he exhausted himself. He emptied himself. He gave up his right as God and he downgraded to being a servant. He came from God to being a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Our holy God became a man, and being found in the form of man, he humbled himself. The king of kings now humbled to his creation, and he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. God exhausted himself. That was costly for us. It cost God everything to bring us home, to bring us into family. God sent his son and he gave up his glory. And he became a servant unto death to purchase our adoption. And this is what's so beautiful because in God's courtroom, when those gavels hit, when those nails hit through the hands of Christ, the moment that happened, our names were forever changed. Our identity was forever changed, right? Our positions were forever changed. And Jesus was, living to give, was willing to give up his life so that we may now have life. Jesus was willing to empty himself so that he can pay our debt in full all to display his glorious grace. That makes the gospel so beautiful, right? And so that shows us how God desperately wanted to show his love to a broken world, creation, to adopt us and to make us son. And now Paul says in verse seven, we get to call this God, not master, not just creator, not just an overlord, but we get to call him father. 
and we are now called his son. And so seeing God as son or seeing God as father is a beautiful privilege that we have in the gospel. But I want to be honest with you. Seeing God as father may be very difficult for many of us, right? Definitely was difficult for me, right? Growing up, I grew up with a dad who was very strict. And so when I came to know Jesus, I saw God in the same lens as my dad, a very strict God who didn't give second chances, who was quick to give consequences, quick to judge, quick to punish. And I view God through that lens because of the father that I had, the broken relationship that I had with my father. Unfortunately, some of us probably grew up with fathers who were abusive. And so because of that, we view God through that lens, that God is a very abusive God. He's not loving. He's not intimate. He's not kind. He's not gentle. And some of us probably grew up with fathers who were absent, right? Who gave birth to us, but then was detached from our lives emotionally, or even if those fathers were home, emotionally, they were detached. And so we feel like God is the same way, where God doesn't care. Or some of us probably grew up with fathers who completely abandoned us. And so we view God through that lens, that the moment I make a mistake, God is going to abandon me. And praise God, some of you probably grew up with fathers who loved you. And because of that, you see God through those lens, right? And so the lenses that we view God is what God is what, what, what Paul is trying to change. Like we are no longer slaves. We are son. Don't see God as an overlord. See God as father, right? And so we see in verse seven, Paul says, we have this amusing, amazing privilege in God. And so for time's sake, I would just want to read a couple of verses so that you can see the amazing privilege that you have. One, um, I want to show you how uh, in this fatherhood of God, in this doctrine of adoption, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus says that this is the God, this is a father that we have that says that until the very end, I will be with you. Until your final breath, I will be beside you. Right, And I hope for you right now in the position that you may feel like you're struggling with some things and you're like, man, is God with me? God is saying, I will be with you the end to the end of the ages. John chapter 14, verse 18, the father says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The father will not abandon or neglect us. I will not leave you as orphans orphans. You have a father who wants to care for you. Matthew chapter 6, 26, the father says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Our father is faithful, and he knows what we need, and he will not hold back from us or figure uh, or for us to figure those things out for ourselves. What is it that you feel like you need right now? 
the father is saying, look at creation. I provide for them, but you are much more special. Do you think I would hold back from you? And John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, the father says, see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called his children. And that is what we are, right? And so we see he's not abusive. He's not an overlord. He doesn't just want us to be his servants or slaves, but he wants to lavish his love, his great love on us. And I love this. I remember when I was in college, I was struggling with a whole bunch of stuff. And I remember someone who was discipling me gave, gets discipling me, gave me this verse. And it really changed the way that I view God. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says, The Lord your God, listen to this, is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. The mighty warrior who went and fought to break those chains and, and, and bondages that you were in. He fought to give you freedom. The mighty warrior who saved. He will take great delight in you, right? In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. And that word, rejoice over you, it literally means to dance. It means to sing and celebration. Like, I want you to imagine and picture God in heaven dancing over you. That's crazy. The same way it was crazy when the father ran after the prodigal. That's not something that we would ever picture. And so here in Zephaniah saying, God dances when he thinks about you. He sings when he thinks about you. Can you imagine God's voice, right? Singing, better than Rachel's, right? But yes, like God sings over us. That's such a beautiful thing. So you and I thinking that God is disappointed with us and he's looking down on us and shaking his head like, what's wrong with you? In fact, what this is saying, no, even with all your mess ups, he delights. He has great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice, rejoice over you with singing. Oh, this is the father that we have in the gospel. This is the beautiful picture that we have as his sons and his daughters, as his children. That he loves us that much. The father treasures us that much that he celebrates over us. And he has a great plan, a great purpose for us. He has a great inheritance waiting for us. He is relentlessly pursuing us as his children and by faith and not by works and not because we are perfect at following the law, but because he adopted us, simply because he adopted us and his family that he loves us. I hope you see that. And I hope you live in that, not living in religion or in the law, but I hope you live knowing who you are as sons and daughters 
of an amazing, loving God who is the king of kings and who has everything at his disposal, a disposal that's ours. That's ours. So, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we get to call you Daddy. Thank you that we get to call you Papa. Thank you that we get to call you Father. Thank you that you've welcomed us into this intimate relationship, that we get to experience you near us, not this distant God far away just watching and not involved, but you are a God who is walking alongside of us, holding our hands. Thank you that we don't have to do anything to earn that. Thank you because it's your grace and your grace alone that gives us access to that. Lord, for any of us who is struggling with seeing you as father because of the fathers that were in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would help change those lenses for us. And praise God for the awesome fathers that we may have had in our lives that has painted an amazing picture of you, God. Praise God for that. And I pray that all of us as fathers, we would aspire to be that way, to paint a picture of a loving father to our kids. But God, only through your Holy Spirit that you could radically transform our minds to see us as your sons and your daughters in the position of Christ that we get to call you exclusively. We get to call you dad, papa. So we pray all this in your name. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.